For many small business owners and entrepreneurs, the subject of intellectual property, IP for short, can be confusing and therefore overlooked. While many think about patents, IP is a broader term that covers trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, and the like. In this episode, we'll hear from Ray Farrell, co-founder of the intellectual property law firm Carter DeLuca & Farrell. In addition to his decades of experience in IP law, Ray is a strategic intellectual property counselor, business mentor, and angel investor. He serves on the advisory board of the Clean Energy Business Incubator Program in Stony Brook, New York, is a member of the New York Angels, a nationally recognized early-stage investor and advisor group, is chair of the board of directors of the nonprofit organization Institute for Workforce Advancement, and serves on the board of trustees at Malloy University. Ray will help us understand and clarify the various aspects of IP, their common misconceptions, the importance including IP basics in a STEM education, his passion for mentoring and advising entrepreneurs, and the importance of working with investors that provide more than just capital. Ray, thanks for being part of our podcast series. Oh, thanks, John. I'm happy to take part. To get us started, Ray, tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what inspired you to focus on intellectual property law. Yeah, sure. Happy to. It's funny on the inspirational part because I bet if you ask, you know, a thousand patent attorneys, 999 would, you'd find out that they actually backed into it. And that was at least my story because you have to take a, a separate bar exam to be admitted in the United States anyway to practice patent law. And so you need an undergrad in engineering or science or computer science. So you kind of have to know as, as somebody in high school that you wanted to do that so you could have the right course major set up. So in my case, I think it was a typical thing of still trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And, and in many ways, I'm still trying to figure that out. But so after getting my mechanical engineering degree, it was just suggested to me because I was, you know, soul searching a little bit that maybe I'd want to check out law school. And actually, it was the furthest thing from my mind at the time. But I wound up starting to go in the evening program. And then after a year of that, I, I, I really liked it, actually. And so I, I merged into the, you know, the full-time program and finished up in the normal three-year period. And it didn't take long once I got into that when I heard about this patent law. So I uh, investigated it, I was interviewing around, and I, and I actually, um, I wound up interviewing with the, the U.S. Navy. They had a lot of civilian patent attorneys. I wasn't a military uh, serving member, but I you know, worked for DOD in, in the Department of the Navy, uh, actually the Naval Air Systems Command in Crystal City in Virginia. You know, I felt it would give me great responsibility early on with some of the most high-tech stuff going on, uh, you know, military research, right? Sure, sure. And so that was a great uh, intro to it, and I I was blessed with a, a great mentor early on that, that guided me to get some key experience. He had a tremendous amount of uh, litigation experience, engineering knowledge, just a, you know, a great, great person that guided me at the time. For no particular reason, because it was just something that he, he, I guess, felt he needed to do, and there was no gain for him, right? So that helped me tremendously. And then I, um, after about just about three years there, I uh, went into a private practice at a firm, and then got much more into it. And then I knew that's what I wanted to be doing at the time, and that's where I found myself. And I. 
I bet you'd hear many similar stories to that than people that said, oh, I always knew I wanted to be a patent attorney. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a common thing when grammar school kids are asked, what do they want to be when they grow up? I'm sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Intellectual properties such as patents and copyrights and trademarks, they're often discussed, but I always find this seemingly somewhat misunderstood. And I realize this can be an expansive topic, but perhaps you can provide some insights for our aspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders in general as to what is intellectual property. Yeah, sure. Basically, you hear it as patents, trademarks, and copyrights. You're right. They're very, very misunderstood, and they're often misunderstood by very sophisticated people that uh, don't quite have some of the nuances down. And I guess I'll take a shot at doing a Reader's Digest version of this. So patents in the U.S., well, first of all, it's in the Constitution, right? And the agreement is basically in exchange for an exclusionary right to exclude others from practicing your invention. You're agreeing with the government to share your idea, your invention, in such a way, so the obligation for the patent application is that you provide an enabling written description of your invention so that the term is that one of ordinary skill in the art will understand how to make and use your invention to foster greater innovation, right? So it's a sort of a a breeder reactor effect, right? So in exchange for that, you would get exclusionary rights for a period, and now it's generally 20 years from the filing date of the application. But interestingly, right there, uh, I'll stop for a second, is one of the misconceptions is that if I have a patent, I can go and, you know, out and make and sell whatever it is that I've come up with, right? And that's actually not accurate. You have an exclusionary right to exclude others from making what is claimed in your patent. Right. It doesn't mean that there are not broader patents that you might potentially infringe if you set up shop and start selling something. So that's another concept. Basically, you'll hear it referred to as a freedom to operate that needs to be cleared before you start doing that. So without getting into those weeds too much, so patents are exclusionary rights. You need to get an application on file and develop those rights through the application grant process. And you can lose the rights if you don't, you know, you do certain disclosing or sales uh, activities So that's something we'll get into maybe a little bit later. Trademarks are kind of the opposite, right? So trademarks, the rights in a trademark are developed by actually, you know, getting out there and using it publicly. Mm. (laughs) So it's a bit opposite. You want to get out there. Similar thing, though, there's some freedom to operate scenarios, too, with other trademarks. You know, you could start selling something under a brand name or something, and without even filing an application, you would be establishing, by your usage, common law trademark rights. And so those rights are developed by using a mark in commerce in connection with goods or services. And of course, there's federal registration and state registration. And then copyright, so that's a creative expression. The rights do come into existence once they're fixed in a final form. There's a bundle of rights that go with that, and it's also a registration process. And there's many reasons for wanting to register, for example, in order to sue for copyright infringement. You know, that registration would need to be there. It affects the damages. So that's getting a little bit deeper into things. So those are the main intellectual property rights you'll hear about. Trade secrets is another area that's pretty involved in order to ensure that you maintain that. But essentially, that's the bundle of it. And so there are a lot of misconceptions. Another misconception that's sort of a pet peeve of mine, because when I hear people say this, for example, in a pitch for a uh, fundraising round, and they make a pitch and they 
say I have a, a provisional patent on this. Well, there's no such thing as a provisional patent. There are provisional patent applications in the United States and you know elsewhere, but they never mature into any rights. They can serve as priority for a follow-on application that would go through and become a patent. And so that's just an example of a common misconception. For me, I start twitching when I hear that because I know there's just a, a complete lack of appreciation of, mm. of the term. Now, there's a couple of different types of patents, aren't there? I mean, there's a design patent, and maybe you can just expand upon that just a little bit. Yeah, if we, if we focus on patents, now we can kind of peel that back a little bit more. So when people say a patent, and, and I'm talking in terms of the U.S., it pretty much applies throughout, although different countries are different types of patents that don't match up with ours. But the most common thing, if someone says they have a patent, what they're really referring to generally is that they have a utility patent. So that is on a classic item that you would see where there's a, a number of components. It could be a method. It could be a, a process, uh, you know, any kind of device, right? And you're claiming elements in that, which would define sort of the property. You know, some people in a really high-level explanation say, like, oh, you have a three-legged stool, right? So the legs and the top and things like that. It's a physical thing in that regard. That's an apparatus claim. It's really utility patents, right? But yeah, there's also design patents, which, you know, to really simplify that, it's, it's sort of what you see is what you get because it's purely the aesthetic appearance of the item that's non-functional. So it's not the function of the item, it's the aesthetic appearance of the item. So that's design patents. And, and then there are also plant variety patents. I've never seen a work done one in my life. They're out there. I happen to know one of the, I think, one of the world's leading experts on that, and he seems gainfully employed. <laughs> uh, but those you wouldn't hear of so much. And I mentioned before a provisional patent application. That leads toward a utility patent predominantly, uh, right? So th- those are different types of patents, and right. you can get into all kinds of strategies in terms of what makes sense for a given approach. So for anyone who's watched the show Shark Tank, it's common for the investors to ask if the business owner has a patent on their product. And I think people should know that a company's IP can be worth more than the physical assets of the company. And the role of the inventor, um, the innovator or entrepreneur is to turn ideas into a business, but you can't ignore protecting those unique ideas and inventions. When is the right time to seek legal advice and file for a patent? Yeah, this is a very tricky one, right? Because it really gets into the area of you don't know what you don't know. So somebody focused on, they come up with something and maybe they've heard of patents, right? And when I speak to folks about this, <laughs> I, I try to speak of it in terms of potential rights and avoiding losing potential rights. So the short answer to your question is you can't seek legal advice or think about this early enough. If you have uh, an idea or a concept for uh, something new, right? If you've done nothing yet, you haven't disclosed it, you haven't made it, offered it for sale, you published it, right? Mm-hmm. Your your potential patent or, or patent rights are still intact. Now, I say potential because you have to go through the examination process. There's prior art out there that would get used against your application to either adjust your the scope of your patent claims or maybe basically say that you can't get a patent. The reasoning to seek this legal advice as early as possible is, you know, if you're going to be going out there, use the Shark Tank example or in front of any kind of investor pitch, patents and IP, they're not the be-all and end-all for every business, but 
there's certainly something important. If you did everything right and you didn't lose any of the potential value for the IP or their patents, so then it becomes a stronger leveraging piece in order to entice the investors that there's something leveraged here above just competing on an equal playing field with other competitors. And you can lose that potential in a number of ways. The U.S. has a grace period, for example, and there's discussions to harmonize that around the world, but we're still a ways away from it, where you know if you went out and disclosed it accidentally out of confidence or so offered to sell it, or you'd have a one-year period in which to get your U.S. patent application on file. You may have already lost potential rights because now, uh, as it exists, you will have lost your right to file say, for example, in Europe or outside the United States. Maybe that's a significant market of the commercial potential. Who knows? But the thing is that you would have lost it before you even got out of the box. Right. So that's why, you know, the sooner the better is one example of that. Now, perhaps many, you know, inventors, while they're in that process, they forget that they really should be documenting things along the way, right? I mean, you should get, date your sketches and have a written explanation of what you're doing. And, you know, some of that documentation can be very important in terms of putting your, your application together, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think years and years ago, so the U.S. switched over. Uh, we, we used to be a true uh, first inventor uh, country, basically. So even if you beat me to the patent office and you had independently invented, right, there was no derivation or, or anything like that. You, you came up, you, you know, oftentimes if you, for example, with engineers, if you give them a problem, you know, multiple engineers may come up with the same novel solution independently. So in theory, they could all be inventors. And the U.S. system used to be that regardless, they would have a process called an interference to determine who actually invented it first, right? right? And then award the patent to the first true inventor. And now we've harmonized with the rest of the world in this regard where we are now a, a first inventor to file. So you are a true inventor, and then you win the race to the patent office with mm. your uh, application. The concept of, you know, uh, like, for example, it used to be lab notebooks and have them signed and dated and witnessed and understood uh, by someone basically who understands the technology. A lot of that was used for those purposes to corroborate the date of the invention and interference proceedings. Now, you know, with electronic information, all that, there's so much uh, natural data being captured. It's, the shift is really more focused on the race to the patent office, in a sense, because the likelihood of there being other true inventors out there and not someone who derived or copied or something like that, it's a real possibility, and you don't want to lose on those rights. So that's more the emphasis these days, I Got would it. say. Got it. And are there some basic requirements for something to be patentable? Yes. Some in the U.S. now are, are controversial because there's this is another... Uh, nuanced area. So there's a concept of patent eligibility, whether or not your your subject matter that you've come up with is even eligible for the patenting process or to be awarded a patent. So hold that for a second. Okay. And then there's a concept of patent ability. So whether or not, for example, my idea or concept is patentable over some other thing that was done before, or it's called prior art, right? So if there were prior patents or published patent applications or published journal articles or, you know, stuff already on the market, you go on Google, you find it. So there are certain things that are not eligible for patenting. So 
natural phenomena, abstract ideas, laws of nature, right? Right. And so that threshold got much harder to overcome in the U.S. with regard to a lot of things. So assuming you get past that, the patentability aspect is, you know, you need to have something that is new, useful, and non-obvious. Those are the U.S. terms and standards outside, and, you know, you'll hear it referred to as inventive step, for example, in Europe and elsewhere. Basically, what that translates to is there one thing out there that anticipates your idea or, for example, one published patent or patent application that shows and explains everything that you're claiming is yours. And that's, you know, so you're not novel over that. Got it. And then the, um, the useful acts, you know, that's a utility thing. That's usually pretty easy to meet. But then the non-obvious one is where the majority of patent applications will get hung up or go back and forth in a negotiation with the patent examiner where they'll cite prior art against your claims and basically say that, you know, if you combine the Smith reference with the Jones reference, your claim is obvious in view of those two because it would have been obvious to one of ordinary skill in the art to combine them and arrive at your invention. And, and that's where it boils down to the majority of it. As I said, my, one of my first questions was, this is obviously a complex subject. It's an expansive topic. And I'm happy you're able to sort of boil it down and distill it for us a bit. But that kind of leads me to the question then, should maybe intellectual property law or the concept of patents be part of a STEM education? where we get students more in tune to what they should know about it, and then this way when they reach that point as early as possible, then take those steps to protect their ideas? I, I love that concept. I actually try to do that as much as I can. And you, you are actually seeing uh, efforts and initiatives on that. The U.S. Patent Office, for example, does a great job. On their website, you can find materials that are directed exactly for that, for kids and to integrate them as soon as possible. Why not, right? Yeah. You get it out there more to the younger kids. They get more inspired by it. It's kind of sexy for them, right, and exciting. And not only that, it, it gets to a much broader group. This is a great opportunity to get to kids in all walks of life, in all levels of underserved communities, in every aspect of that, whether it's young girls or women or minorities. There's many, many initiatives now around the world from the different patent players in the ecosystem, for example, from the women's perspective, because they're so, so underrepresented among the ranks of inventors, right, or right. innovators or people involved in this. Yeah, absolutely. In addition to being an attorney, you've also uh, been an early stage investor in some companies. And I was curious, so what are the key elements you're looking for when you're hearing that entrepreneur make their pitch? Yeah. A lot of times, you know, the idea can be fantastic, right? And everything's great. But for me, anyway, it starts with people, the, the personal component of it. Because, you know, you think about it, you're, you're going to write a check out to someone that, how well do you know this person? How much of an opportunity have you gotten to assess them, their skills, their experience, their background, their abilities, the ability to follow through in a pretty gargantuan lift, um, you know, for example, the failure rate of startup, it's excessive. I mean, it's sure. probably in the 90 percentile. So it starts with the people, for me, who's involved, what's the team, what is their skill sets, are they aware of their weaknesses and willing to, you know, bring in 
those skill sets to follow through, then of course, you know, it's the idea, the business model, how are they going to make revenue? What's their ability to adapt and pivot on the way? Or how are they going to scale this business to a point where it will exit? What are the exit opportunities? And then of course, can they execute on all these things in a very dynamic growing situation that may take them way out of what their original skill sets were and and how do they adapt to that and follow through. And that's an awful lot to try to predict (laughs) at the very beginning of a process, which is why for me, it comes back to the personal aspect of it. Now for a lot of entrepreneurs, it's one thing to get someone to write the check. And then there's another aspect is once you've made that commitment, now there's a relationship. So, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs when working with investors? And and what do you expect from them as the process grinds on? I think first what I would say, you know, from the entrepreneur standpoint, so there might be an eagerness to, to get in the funding, to, to be able to keep going, have enough, you know, and you hear the terms runway and things like that. How much, how much further can this get me? What milestones can I accomplish with that money? But I would really, really caution that, to get the funding is nice, but if you don't get something more with that funding to leverage it, you're missing the point, right? Because there really should be something that comes with that from who's giving you the check. What are their skill sets? What's their network like? How relevant is their prior experience or knowledge or whatever to what it is you're doing and how can they help you? How can they help you leverage yourself? and leverage their assets and experience and connections because my experience and everything I've been reading so far and certainly how I feel is I'm not doing this like I'm going into the casino and putting it on black or something like that. It's because you really enjoy this from whatever part of the ecosystem you come into it from. And I happen to be a patent attorney, but you know, people that were prior entrepreneurs or in business or they're here because they really want to help and they can Right. If you if you have the sense and foresight to learn how to leverage that and become a partner with them instead of now you got their money and you, all you think is that they're worried about when am I going to get my return on the money. That's, that's the wrong way to go about it, in my opinion. I think that's brilliant. I think that's so spot on. As we know, as uh, entrepreneurs are constantly told, the journey is not easy. You need to put together your own team. But also you need to put together uh, advisors and who better to advise and help and support of those who have something at stake, right? And I think to some extent also knowing that the news, whether it's good or bad, has to be shared and be transparent about things. Because again, every journey along the way, you'll have a stumble here or there, but you got to be able to work with people to pick yourself up and continue to move forward. It's ups and downs and twists and turns and pivots and restarts. And when you've got those investors that get that and are there for you in those moments, you know, everybody can be around and backslapping and all that when things are going well. It's when things go south or, you know, you have problems that need to be fixed is those people can become your greatest ally instead of somebody who's like all over you because, oh, great, there goes my investment. You know, right. And then just being one more thing to agitate you. Yeah, no, I, I think this is, is such a good conversation for potential entrepreneurs to hear. I think those are all important factors. Um, so, Ray, what one word describes who you are? Huh, interesting. I would say that would have been a different answer uh, along the way many times. 
Maybe I would say connect or, or even maybe even better leverager, but in a certain sense. When I said leverager, I meant to help them personally leverage themselves up. I guess it's sort of what I was describing before, but take a more active role in it. You know, with people that I think are worth that investment, because that's a big investment in terms of spending that time. But I'm amazed at some of the incredible people I've met that I've engaged in that specifically. And then what happens is it's a, it's a massive snowballing effect upwards where all of a sudden now they can accomplish so more for what they were looking to do in a shorter period of time. And then that gets passed on or, or pushed forward or something like that. One of the quotes that I like to use a lot, and it happens to be, it was used a lot by John Wooden, the famous UCLA basketball coach. And I'm by no means a basketball person. It just happens like this. And it, it kind of goes sort of like this, that you, you can't live a perfect day until you've done something for someone in such a way that they will never be able to repay you. Wow. I think that... <laughs> That's a powerful story. Yeah, yeah. When you think about it, right? And, and it hits you, right? I think it resonates with me is because when I was younger, a lot younger, I mean, even going back to, you know, maybe 10 or so, there were people that kind of intervened or did stuff for me there was no reason in the world for them to do it. There was no gain for them, no motives or, you know, whatever. And then I benefited tremendously. In some cases, life trajectory altering type stuff. I can't repay some of those, uh, even if I tried, you know. And so when I came upon that quote, you know, it was something, it was inbred in me, my parents anyway, right? But that sort of is the driver for me, especially now. And so, yeah. That's why I would say that leverager, maybe. Wow. I mean, I'm just, that to me really encapsulate what it's all about to help other people, to mentor, to do all the things that really have made you a success in who you are. And I truly appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. And I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. Thanks so much, Ray. Oh, great. Thanks a lot, John. I really appreciate it. Take care. During our discussion, Ray talked about the main types of intellectual property rights patents, trademarks, and copyrights. Patents, as Ray described, are an exclusionary right granted by the U.S. government. In exchange for the right to exclude others from using your invention, you agree to share your invention through a patent application. The application includes an enabling description of the invention so that someone of ordinary skill in the art will understand how to make it and use it. The United States has three principal patent types, utility, design, and plant. Utility patents generally cover how your invention functions or how an invention is made, such as a new and useful process, software, article of manufacture, or composition of matter, or any new and useful improvement of any of these. Your utility patent rights are granted for 20 years from the date of the application. Design patents cover ornamental design, non-functional features of an article of manufacture, and are granted for a term of 15 years. These designs may include those on jewelry, automobiles, furniture, fonts, computer icons, and even the shape of a beverage container, like the design of the original Coca-Cola bottle. Plant patents, simply stated, cover certain newly discovered plants and are granted a term of 20 years. So what is patentable? As Ray described, an item is generally patentable if it meets the characteristics of being novel, useful, and non-obvious. He suggests that if you have an idea or concept of something new and haven't disclosed it, haven't made it, offered it for sale, or published it, get legal advice as soon as possible so your potential patent and patent rights remain intact. 
trademarks, according to the United States Patent and Trademark Office, can be any word, phrase, symbol, design, or combination of these things that identifies your goods and services. It's how your customers recognize you in the marketplace and distinguish you from your competitors. Ray also talked about copyrights, which according to the United States Patent and Trademark Office is a form of protection U.S. law provides to the authors of original works of authorship. A copyright is secured automatically when the work is created. However, as Ray points out, you establish a public record that gives you a bundle of rights by registering your copyright. For more information, check out the USPTO.gov website. In his role as an early stage investor, Ray discussed the key elements you look for when you're hearing an entrepreneur make a pitch. For Ray, it starts with people. And what's the team like? What are their skills? What's the business model and how will they generate revenues? What's their ability to adapt and pivot along the way? Or how will they scale this business to a point where it will exit? What are the exit opportunities? By the way, his advice to entrepreneurs when they're choosing an investor is to consider the investor's skill sets. What's the network like? How relevant is their prior experience or knowledge of what it is you're doing? And how can they help? And when things go south, you can predict they will. Those people can become your greatest ally. And the one word Ray used to describe himself was at first connector. And then he used the term leverager to describe a person who helps others leverage their abilities to be successful. Ray quoted the Hall of Fame basketball coach, John Wooden, who said, you can't live a perfect day without doing something for someone who will never be able to repay you. Those are inspiring words. And thanks to Ray for sharing his insights and valuable lessons. This podcast is executive produced by John Rebecca and New York Institute of Technology in conjunction with the School of Management and the Office of Strategic Communications and External Affairs. The Interim Dean of the School of Management and Executive Producer of this podcast is Deborah Cohen. Our Marketing and Social Media Strategist is Petra Shantaraga. And our Audio Editor and Mixer is Brian Falk from Abacus Entertainment. Special thanks to Professor Ellie Schwartz and Victoria Greco for all their support. Until next time.